Today we're going to wrap up our series of messages in 2 Timothy, um, <clears throat> what I've called View from the Edge, because Paul was on the edge of eternity. His life was drawing to a close. Uh, some of you will be asking and have already asked, so what are we going to do after we finish this? Well, the first thing I'm going to do, first thing tomorrow morning is get in my car and go on vacation. That's the first thing. <clears throat> uh, where are we going? Well, we don't really have a destination per se. All I know is someplace along the line in the next two weeks, we want to end up in Nashville so I can see my grandbabies. But other than that, uh, we're kind of just taking it as it goes and going to have a lot of fun, I think. It's either to be wonderful or disastrous. We never know for sure. Sometimes I can't tell the difference anymore anyway. But after you raise four kids, it just becomes a blur. But what are we going to do when we get back? Well, <clears throat> we're going to start a new series that's actually going to run all the way through the fall, and it's simply called Life Matters. And the whole idea behind this series is the fact that as we have really begun to look at the critical areas that especially uh, what we call the millennials are dealing with in their generation, they consistently, every study, every survey is done says they are really struggling with know, to know how to make marriage work to make families work, and to figure out how to handle money so they don't end up in serious financial trouble. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do a series, four weeks on talking about marriage relationships, four weeks talking about family relationships, four weeks talking about financial issues. Money ma marriage matters, money matters, family matters. Now, what we're going to do a little bit differently is we're going to sync the Sunday morning with our Wednesday night so that what we do on Sunday morning, we're going to follow up Wednesday night by a more intensive addressing and really more of an interactive way of speaking to the issues of marriage, family, and money. And it's a very, very practical series, but the thing that we need to keep in mind is these are three issues that the Word of God is overflowing with information about. And one of the great challenges today in our culture is many people feel like the Bible doesn't speak to relevant everyday issues, and they do. So we're telling you in advance, while I'm gone, they're going to do a whole promotional thing on it. We're really going to challenge you to invite your non-Christian friends saying, hey, you want to learn more about marriage, you want to learn more about family, you want to learn more about handling your money and so forth, as a real opportunity to be begin to expose them to the fact that God has wisdom available for us today to help us live our lives more effectively. So do we have a deal? Okay. Then let's talk about chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. If you don't mind, you turn there to verse 1. We'll begin by reading this chapter together, or at least most of it. <clears throat> and if you don't mind, if we stand together as you follow along as I read the passage. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. 
For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask that as we set aside this time, that we would invite you in our hearts to allow you to speak to us. That what each of us needs to hear may not be the same. It may be as several as we are people, Lord. Yet we ask that you would speak your powerfully truth into our lives that you tear down strongholds in our lives that keep us bound up and, and free from being able to be all that you have desired for us to be and that we might discover all of your grace and all of your purpose for our lives. That, Lord, that we could be people who are so filled with joy because we have the opportunity to serve and to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Grant us this grace, we pray, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, as I watched the close of the Rio Olympics, I wondered if there weren't some athletes who were filled with uh, at least a degree of regret. I mean, specifically, like those who were disqualified because they had been guilty of doping using performance-enhancing drugs, and they had been found out. You know, Paul gave the warning in chapter 2, we remember in verse 5, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. There were some who learned that lesson in a painful way. I can't imagine what it's like to spend four years or more training for an event and then to be disqualified because you just tried to give yourself a little bit of dishonest advantage. But there were even more who simply didn't show up because they were afraid of the Zika virus or because the waters were super polluted or because of the crime that Rio was known for. But I couldn't help but wonder if they weren't sitting there thinking to themselves and feeling within themselves as they saw their contemporaries marching into that arena for the last time, many of them with the victors' medals around their necks, and listening to the accolades of the cheering crowds 
for their accomplishments. As I was thinking about it, I suddenly remembered something that my first pastor said to me when I was a young believer, struggling as young believers often do when they begin to discover that there are such things as trials. Up to that point, I thought a trial was somebody a guilty convict went to. I didn't realize it was a way in which God made your life miserable. But, <laughs> but I'm struggling with that and, and you know, get, dealing with that emotion of I want to just give up and give in. And he said to me, he said, 90% of success is just showing up. The rest is up to God. That was a pivotal comment to me because we can only know what God is going to do if we actually become available to God, if we actually show up and respond to what he has. And oftentimes we don't because we look at ourselves and say, what do I have to offer? Or if you knew my story, if you, if you were to look up my crime criminal report or my history, you would have nothing to do with me. And it's hard for us to imagine that God doesn't concern himself with that. God does not look on the outward appearance. He doesn't look on the police record. He doesn't look at your personal history or the testimony of people who have struggled with you. He looks at your heart, and if your heart is for him, he will take your life and use it for his glory. It's not fair, but it's only right because God who is righteous never does anything that is wrong. But the key here is that God cannot reveal how great he can be in your life and my life if we consistently refuse to show up. Now, I know why I wasn't at the Olympics. Um, number one, I'm not qualified. Uh, number two, I wasn't invited. But there is a contest for which I am qualified. There is a competition for which I have been invited to compete and we refer to it as the Great Commission. In fact, you know it, Matthew 28, but verses 18 and 19, Jesus said this. He says, all authority has been given to me, and heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. In other words, the word exousia there literally means the right to rule, to do, to accomplish. In other words, Jesus said, there are no limitations on what is allowable for me to do. This is my world, I own it, everything in it, from every mouse to every muscle, I own it all. Amen. I have all power. And then he turns to his disciples and said, therefore, in other words, since there is no legitimate limitation, there is no wall too high or distance too great or challenge too heavy, because there is nothing that can withstand what I want, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, here's the part that I find most fascinating. According to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, he says this word that's translated go was the regular word for the march of an army. In other words, the command to go is a, a military command. It's a command to fall in line and follow your commander into battle. So he's basically giving us our marching orders as part of God's army in the world. Just go. Now, then any of you who have been in the military or been exposed to military life realize that when your commanding officer tells you to do something, we don't stop for a minute and take a vote. 
Now, how many of you want to attack? <laughs> well, because we know that majority would win and everybody's hand would go down. Why don't we wait till they come and blow themselves up? You know, it's, it's kind of do that today, don't they? Anyway, but it's the idea that you have to fall under the authority of your commanding officer. And God is very clearly saying to you, that's who I am. That when you gave your life to me, I became your Lord, I became your master, you became my slave, I became your general, I became your commander-in-chief, and I expect you to submit to my authority and to fall into rank behind me. And that's essentially what Paul relates to Timothy in his first and his second letter, where he says to them essentially, fight the good fight of faith, finish the race, keep the faith. He kind of mixes metaphors, athletic and military metaphors, which was really easy for the ancients to grasp because in their world, athletics was a form of training for military conflict. So that all of the early Olympic games were essentially things that they did when they went into battle. Running, throwing javelins, and all of the rest. That was physical training for combat. So they often blended those metaphors together. And Paul says, therefore, what we need to understand is we are in this conflict. We need to fight the good fight. Not just any fight, but the good fight. The fight of faith. We need to keep the faith and we need to finish what God has set before us. Now, as we have seen that it was Paul's deep concern in this letter that Timothy and the others that he was speaking to, extending all the way to you and I today, would not stand our ground and would not fight the good fight of faith, but instead we would flee in the face of conflict. That when hardships come and when suffering is accompanied with it, that the tendency is often sometimes to run away from something, to avoid it, to duck and find cover. And Paul did not say this simply theoretically because he was in the midst of experiencing that even as he wrote. Three times he says to us, everyone has deserted me. And here again, the term deserted fits into this military context again, because I doubt there are any of us who do not understand what desertion in military terms actually means. It's the grossest form of the dereliction of duty. It's the idea where you leave others in the lurch and in danger so that you can avoid it for yourself. So when a man or a woman deserts their post, they run away, they hide, they avoid the conflict, and most devastatingly, they cede the battle of conflict to the enemy. They allow the enemy to come in and take over the territory that is not his own. They allow the thief to come and to steal, to kill, and to destroy, as Jesus described it. Essentially, they lose the conflict before it even starts because they don't show up. I think about how Solomon in Proverbs 6, and again in chapter 24, made this comment. He was talking about the lazy man who sits around and says, give me a little more sleep, give me a little more slumber, and then it says, poverty will overtake him like an armed man. He'll just get overwhelmed. Why? Not because of what he does, but by, again, the fact by what he doesn't do. He just doesn't do anything. 
Somehow in our minds, we structure a lack of action, or we would call inaction, as not being as harmful as bad actions. But as Edmund Burke once said many years ago, all it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. And oftentimes when we sit back and say, well, it's not for me to do, I'll I'll let somebody else take it, we actually are ceding something over to the enemy and letting him have control. Now, what made these desertions even more tragic in Paul's mind, and I think they should be in our mind as well, is that again, all that was needed for victory, Paul was saying, is for you guys just to stand your ground, just to show up. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians talking about we're in a spiritual warfare and we need to put on the armor of God, and three times he simply says, what you need to do, Timothy, is to stand. And having done everything you can do, then stand, therefore stand. It's quite a phrase, quite a statement. But three times, just stand, stand, stand. Hold your ground, dig in, and the enemy cannot succeed. Well, the problem is, is that it's all about grace anyway. You see, when Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 7, for God did not give us the spirit of timidity, or we talked about before, about cowardice, quite literally, but a spirit of power. He's given us this dunamos, this explosive dynamic. It's where we get our word dynamite and dynamic. He's given us this dynamic inside of us. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, it isn't inside of me. How do you know if you never pop the top? You know, you, you, you keep it so confined inside of you and you're so careful and so limited in how you allow it to express yourself that you've never really given God much of an opportunity to show what powerful effervescence is in there. You are like a Sprite can that's been shaken good and hard and God says just pop the top and make a mess. I mean, that's, that's the power that God has given to you and I to really mess up the world that Satan is trying to take control of and to bring desire and order to him. And he goes on to tell us, he says, not because of anything we have done. You see, this is again where we get hung up because we're saying, I don't have the power because I'm looking at myself and saying, I don't have the quality, I don't have the strength, I don't have the ability, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too middle-aged, I got too many kids, I don't have enough kids, I don't, I'm married, I'm not married. We, we go on with a list on and on and on and on. I just went on a vacation with a four-year-old and a six-month-old. I can't be... <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> that must have been the Lord. <laughs> when you say something stupid, blame it on God. <laughs> Oh, I've let another technique out. Okay. (laughs) But Paul makes it very clear. He says, stop looking at your resources. Stop looking at your bucket and saying, well, there's nothing in there to deal with this. And instead realize it's all about his purpose. And if he wants it, he will give you the grace to do it. He goes on, Christ who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality has empowered you to serve him. There's this guard the good deposit. What is a good deposit? That gospel message that he has given to it. Guard it and with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me. So I've got God's grace. God isn't holding stuff against me. I've got God's purpose. He wants it to be done. And I've got the Holy Spirit living inside of me that will give me the power to accomplish whatever he desires for me to accomplish. 
So that therefore, Paul said in chapter 2 in the first verse, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't be strong in you. If I measure a challenge by my intellect, it's not even a fair fight. I lose every time. If I measure a challenge by my strength or my money or my whatever kind of acumen that we think you have to have in order to accomplish whatever it is you feel like God wants to do, if I measure it by myself, I will always look puny. You know, when Jesus says, say this mountain, be rooted up and cast into the sea, how many of you tried that lately? <laughs> because you sit there and go, oh, well, it's got to be really kind of something allegorical there because, you know, I have trouble digging a hole in my backyard, you know, much less uprooting mountains. And yet it's amazing what God can do. It's amazing what God can do if we just simply respond to what God wants. And this has been a message that you've probably heard me preach many times, but it's because it's one that goes from Genesis to Revelation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't wait for Adam to figure out how to evolve. God said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, God has been the doer since the very beginning, and his basis of doing has never been you or your goodness or your righteousness or your whatever. It's always been according to his purpose that he has expressed himself. And as the writer of Chronicles put it so well, that his eyes are going to and fro across the face of the earth looking for somebody who will be loyal to him that he might show himself strong in their behalf. He didn't say he's looking for somebody who is smart enough, good-looking enough, and doggone it, people like me. He, he didn't say anything like that. He said, I'm just looking for somebody who says, God, at the end of the day, I want to be loyal to you. He says, then you're my man, you're my woman. I'm going to move through you. So sometimes you look at people who are being used by God in exciting ways and you go, well, that's not fair. I'm smarter than they are. I'm better looking. I'm more talented. Why isn't God using me? I don't get it. This is all so unfair. And the answer is so simple. Yeah, it's like I used to always say, well, before I got saved, I was young. I was stupid. I had absolutely no future. I gave that all up for Jesus. It was huge. And let me tell you, I had, I remember a pastor one time tell me, it's not fair that God's using you. I spent all this money to get this education. I, it's not fair that you, I, I didn't know how to answer because, yeah, I agree with you, it's not fair. But why does God choose who he chooses? God chooses those like you without any other thing to, uh, to recommend you than simply saying, God, here I am. I am available, and I will show up wherever you want me to show up. That's why Zechariah said, it is not by might, it is not by power, it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. And his spirit flows through those who say, here am I, take me as Isaiah did. That's why Paul would say, I am by what I am by the grace of God. It's, it's, you know, sometimes I hear people saying, well, we, we've evaluated Paul's writings and he must have an intellect of at least 160, an IQ of 160, and he must have been this, and he had this training and this background, this education. And they create this whole mantle 
of academic accomplishment and intellectualism and say, that's why these letters are so powerful. And it has nothing to do with it. In some ways, it may have gotten in the way. What made it powerful was when he said, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what made the difference. I determined that I was not going to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because I am what I am by the grace of God. There's no place that I can boast or take credit. Now, Paul was not speaking here just about being brave or courageous. Somebody can be brave and courageous even to go into battle knowing he's going to lose or even to die and fail. <laughs> the charge of the light brigade tells us its poetic story of these 600 soldiers who raced into battle in the war in the Crimean War, one of the most foolish charges in history, and they were almost completely obliterated to a man. And yet they, knowing that that was going to be their fate, they did it anyway, and they're regaled in British history as the brave 600. And I would not begin to even say they were not brave. They were extremely brave, extremely courageous. Any man who goes into something like that and knowing he's going to die has, has some kind of things that I didn't get when I was born. But Paul isn't talking about just a foolish bravery or a blind bravery. He is talking about a confidence, not courage, but confidence. A confidence he talked about in verse 12 of the first chapter when he said, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. For us, it is not simply a blind leap of faith as some people accuse us saying, well, you're just believing blindly. No, we aren't. I'm believing in the one that I know. I have met him. He lives inside of me. His spirit inhabits me. He has worked and moved and demonstrated himself to me in just untold, innumerable ways. I know, Paul could say, whom I have believed. I am convinced beyond any doubt because experience has proven it to me that I can trust him. I can trust him with what anything he asks me to do. If he asks me to do it, I can trust him. Because as he would say later on in chapter 4, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. But Paul's warnings in this are also equally important. In fact, we can kind of summarize them chapter by chapter where he begins in chapter 1 by simply saying, do not be ashamed of me or of my gospel because the word of God is not chained even though I am enchained. He talked about that cowardice that makes us afraid and we become ashamed. We don't want to be identified. In chapter 2, he said, not only don't be ashamed, but do not be compromised. Do not allow yourself to be entangled or distracted by the affairs of this life. Or he said, you'll end up following into the trap of the devil. And over time, he will take you captive and you'll end up doing his will. And you wouldn't be the first or the only follower of Jesus who gets entrapped by some hurtful thing and finds their life is being dictated not by the will of God or the Spirit of God, but literally Satan has put a ring in their nose and he's leading them wherever he wants them to go. But sometimes some of the most destructive people in the church 
are the people in the church because they've been taken captive. Satan has been able, as Paul said to the Ephesians, to get a foothold in their life. And he's been able, with that foothold, to build a stronghold. And that stronghold becomes a place in which he operates and really causes the will of the evil one. You sit there and say, well, what do you mean? Well, think about it for a moment. When you talk about rumoring and backbiting and judging and hateful and unforgiveness and all these kind of things that, you know, not us, but other people deal with, right? (laughs) What do you think those are? What do you think that is? Those are footholds that Satan now is pouring the footings and he's calling in the masons because he's going to put up a stronghold and he's going to keep on trying to expand that in your life until he can render you ineffectual and no longer effective for the kingdom of God. You see, Satan knows that if you're saved, he can't send you to hell, but he sure can make you so impotent that you have no effect. And this is something that is is such a subtlety. But it is so critical. It's the reason why we need to be examining ourselves daily, as Paul said, to see whether or not we're walking in the faith or if we're walking in our fears. We need to examine ourselves daily. Am I walking in my faith or am I walking in fear? If I'm walking in faith, I'm looking at God's word and saying, oh, Lord Jesus, help me there. Help me again. Help me, help me, change me. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh God, what a wretched man I am. Have mercy upon me. That's walking in faith. It's looking the word of God squarely in the face and let it reflect mirror-like in your life and show you those things that you need to confess and give to him so that you can remain effectual. Because every time you confess, you know what you do? You invite the bulldozers to come into that area of life and plow up all those footholds and foundations of strongholds and Satan has been trying to build into your life. And suddenly you have clear ground that God now can plant gospel seed for his glory. Then in chapter 3 he said, as he followed the progression again, do not be ashamed, do not be compromised, because he said, do not be corrupted, because there is where it really begins to take hold. As he speaks about in the end times, a completely corrupted culture, overtaken by the power of Satan and of sin. And it happens, he tells us, through all of these chapters, because he says they stray from the truth. Therefore, he said the key is continue in the word of truth, continue in the scriptures, continue to recognize they are God-breathed to where we come finally in chapter 4. He simply says, do not give up. Or I love the way Peter Peterson put it, his rendering. He said, don't ever quit. Don't ever quit. So what does it mean not to give up, not to quit? Well, in chapter 4, he summarizes the last thing that we need to do by simply saying, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Discharge all your duties. Um, Duty is not a word that we hear used much anymore except in a really violent video game. By definition, the word duty means something that's done out of moral or legal obligation, something I am required to do rather than something I do from pleasure. 
I used to explain to my kids, I said, I want to tell you the difference between work and play. Sometimes work and play can look like the same thing. But here's how you tell the difference. When I'm playing and I get tired of playing, I can quit and do something else. When I'm working and I get tired of working, I have to keep on working. So the first time I taught them how to run the lawnmower, it was play. <laughs> but when they wanted to stop, it became work. And they learned the difference really quickly, really quickly. I taught my kids too well. They're all workaholics. But, but you understand that today we find that duty gets little attention because as one psychiatrist explained, he said, kids today have been raised to follow their feelings. They respond to what feels good and sometimes at the bare minimum. So think about this for a moment. When's the last time you've heard, you've heard somebody say, well, I know I, I should, but I just don't feel like it. I know I need to get, I need to get on that, but I just, I just don't feel like it. Now, sometimes that can be a rather harmless thing, like when I say it to my wife. Uh, but you know, I found almost every really important thing in my life, I didn't feel like it in the beginning. You should forgive that person. Well, I just don't really feel like it. I'm kind of getting off on hate right now. <laughs> kind of into this anger, hate mode. And I don't know if I really want to give that up. I think I, you know, I just don't feel like it. You should serve. You should sacrifice. You should get involved. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm waiting to find out what, what God has gifted me in. And I think right then I feel like saying, procrastination? Maybe that's your gift. <laughs> Self-justification, rationalization, you know, because, I mean, really, I, I have all those gifts. I know them well. But it, over and over again, it comes where we are challenged by God and somehow we pull back. And, and it's not surprising because the world that he said we were entering into in chapter 3 was a world that loves self, loves money, and loves pleasure rather than loving God. Think about this for a moment. Many times we make decisions, well, it'll cost me too much, even though I know that's right. You're loving money. Money now has become your idol, your God. Many times we, we know we're supposed to do something or not do something, but we simply say, well, it would inconvenience me. I need more me time. Or we just simply say, it's not fun, I don't want to do it. And it's amazing, as I went to the seminar on, on the millennial generation, and these, these guys, I mean, it was eight hours of just data. They called it big data, and they dumped big data. All these surveys and researches about this whole generation and what they're like and not like, what it isn't. And, one of the, and then they have their, their recommendations. Okay, so if this is how you reach this generation. I thought, okay, how do you reach this generation? They said, first of all, it has to be, whatever you do has to be 52% fun. And the other 48% can be substance. But it's got to be 52% fun. I have never been 52% fun my entire life. I don't even know. I sit back and go, I like to have fun. I, I'm going to calculate this out. We're going to have a Bible study, but let me see. 52% of my message needs to be funny. Well, often it is, but for the wrong reasons. But, uh, 
And I'm sitting there going, and finally we had this breakout in this conversation. They're talking about, what do you guys think about it? I said, frankly, I find this totally overwhelming. How in the world do you even do this? Uh, it was time for me to go. But the whole point is that we are so caught up in this stuff and we have to understand that what's happened is we may believe in God. I mean, theism, the belief that there's a God, is overwhelmingly successful everywhere in the world. I mean, as David, Charles Krauthammer put it so simply, he said, atheism is the only theology that makes absolutely no sense at all, and only silly men would espouse it. I love that guy. But uh, So w people believe in God. They believe there is a God, but what they do is they don't believe he's necessarily relevant, that he is in second position behind my will, that what is pleasing to me, what meet, makes, meets my needs, that's first, that's my true God, so that it becomes self-worship rather than God-worship. And so we've moved from theism to meism. And we've bowed down to not the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we've bowed down to what I refer to as the evil trinity, me, myself, and I. And this is the battlefield, friends, that you and I have to confront every day. It's a, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Meism is a powerful force in our culture. So that if there is a, a lifestyle that I'm living that runs counter to the word of God, we increasingly become those people that he talks about here. That they'll no longer endure sound doctrine, but they will change it. So that suddenly what God says in one context is wrong, we're turning around saying, but in my case it's not. You see, it was against these kind of cultural and social influences that existed in Paul's day and not just in ours. It's a, it's a thing that is an expression of human nature, not simply just Roman culture or Greek culture. It is in every culture throughout every age. And he says, I give you this charge. Discharge. Literally fully carry out all the duties of your ministry. It's interesting that uh, during World War II, um, when the U.S. was landing troops on, 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 the, on the beaches around South Pacific, they came to discover something about a lot of the troops, that they found that only 15% of the men who hit the beach actually discharged their weapons. Because when they got into the reality of live combat death and destruction and explosions and bullets whirring and all this stuff, they, they froze. And so they took from that experience a whole new training regimen where they taught soldiers to in, re reflexively fire their weapons as soon as they came under fire. So have you ever seen any videos of Vietnam? And I'm, you know, I'm such a cheapskate anyway. I'm watching them just filling the bushes full of bullets and I'm thinking to myself, well, that's wasteful. But that's how they were trained. They were trained, when you become, encounter an enemy, you just open your weapons up and you hit them with everything you've got. And it worked. In a way, you have to understand Paul's words here in that context. Because literally, we could probably translate it, my translation would say, 
pull the trigger. Pull the trigger. God has given you this loaded weapon. It is powerful. It is world-changing. It will accomplish its goal. But if you just stand there and don't pull the trigger, then you might as well be holding a baseball bat or a spoon because it'll have no difference. I didn't get paid by the NRA to say that either. But, <laughs> but then he goes on to delineate what does it mean to discharge our duty specifically? And he gets three things. He says, first of all, preach the word. Literally, the, the word there in the Greek means to proclaim it, to make it known, to publish it, to, to give it open expression in your world. That can be through words, that can be through actions, that can be through things that are written or communicated. But he says, you have to understand, as Paul said to the Romans in chapter 10, if nobody preaches to them, how can they believe? Because if they can't hear the message in the first place, they can't believe in something that they never hear. And so he says, preach it. And secondly, preach only it. Don't go into your philosophy or into your psychological perspectives or the scienceology of the day, but preach the word, stay on message. I'm not saying that you can't have conversation about anything besides that. But he would add on to here, but do the work of an evangelist. Even though he knew Timothy wasn't gifted as an evangelist, that's why he said, do the work of an evangelist. Have this in your mind of God, I am here to proclaim and to publish your reality. And, and as I said, that's, that's through words. Sometimes it's through opportunities that are given to us after people have watched our lives. But the question I have to simply pose to you is, in what way are you as a believer publishing the word of Jesus Christ to the world around you? I'm not trying to make you feel like you need to track down your neighbor, your friend, and pigeonhole them and start putting the finger in their chest. But you just need to be saying, God, how do I publish the truth of your gospel? Even if it just begins by praying. My wife and I have discovered simply by praying for people, amazing things are happening. We have relatives like you all over the country that we don't have a chance to talk to about Christ, but we pray that they would get saved. Just doing that, to just begin praying for them. But we're here to proclaim the gospel first and foremost, and Paul's greatest concern is somehow that would stop happening. And that's what fear does. That's what cowardice does. That's what intimidation does. That's what threat does. It makes us go silent. It makes us stand at the bulwarks of faith with a weapon in hand, and we just simply will not discharge our weapons. That, secondly, he said, not only preach it, but do it with persistence. He said, in season and out of season. I love the New Living Translation puts it, be persistent whether the time is favorable or not. We have to be careful. Timing is important in all of life. But sometimes we use timing as an excuse for not doing what is timely. Well, I just didn't feel it was the right time to say anything. My question is, so what is the right time going to look like so in case you miss it next time, I can point it out? This is the right time. Because sometimes that's just an excuse. Well, it's just not the right time. They're not really open to it. 
Or as Judean Peterson put it, he said, never lose your sense of urgency. Variously, it's translated in other translations as be always ready, be ready with intensity, be instantaneous. But it's this idea that I am front-loaded. I, I recognize as I'm going through my day that, that at the front of my mind needs to be this thought that I am here to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world around me. And then thirdly, he said, not only preach the word and preach it persistently, but preach it with great patience. The word patience here it can be literally translated a joyful and hopeful endurance. We don't often put joyful and hopeful with endurance, do we? <laughs> Especially joyful. But it's the idea of this is hard, but I'm going to continue joyfully doing it because I believe that it's going to make a difference. I believe it's going to matter. This summer, over the years, my wife and I have uh, got into building <clears throat> block walls, uh, you know, those anchor stone masonite walls. And, and uh, it started, I went to Russia one time and I came home and there's this beautiful little wall that uh, my family and some friends came over and put up in our backyard because we have this hill. Our backyard is a mountain. And at least that's what the kids call it. It's a mountain. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. You know, we landscaped it. It's all nice. It's pretty. And once I saw how it was done, I thought, well, you know, I could extend that out there. And so I extended it out. And so I had the whole layer of wall. And as years went by, I thought, you know, it really would be nice to continue up the hill and put another wall in there. And so I just, I, you know, I, I built another one all the way across there. And by hand, I backfilled every bit of it, you know. And, and then a few years later, I thought, you know, really, it'd be nice to actually put another wall up there. And so we did. Now, keep in mind, my backyard is 130 feet long. So we're talking about thousands of blocks, right? And so, and, and we're going up as high as seven blocks high, so it's fairly tall. And so I put another wall up there, and that was really, really cool. But you know what? One day I looked and I said, you know, I really think we could continue to build another wall. Now at this point now, we're not only having them drop the blocks off, I'm hauling them in the backyard, I'm lifting them by hand up the various levels, each one, because they only weigh 60 pounds each, and I'm lifting each one in place and putting them across there. So this summer, this spring, my wife and I, we decided we were going to do the final wall, wall number five. What in the world is wrong with me? <laughs> when I got done, I mean, I calculated what I had done. Taking the number of blocks that we had, pallets of blocks, so forth, it, it added up to 130,000 pounds because I had to lift each block four times. <laughs> had to excavate everything by hand and then had to backfill it. So here I have 54 tons, almost 55 long tons of block that my wife and I, over about a month and a half, every free moment, carried by hand and lifted up to the top. And I was explaining this to my granddaughter who's struggling with addiction. And I, I told her, I said, honey, here's how it works. When I first got the energy to say, you know, I think I'll build another wall. And believe me, this is the last one. <laughs> I'm done. The next one will kill me. But I said, I, I, I kind of had this flush of energy and optimism. And so I went for it. 
I ordered the block, and then it arrived, and I looked at all those pallets in front of our house, and I thought, what? What? I wanted to cuss. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> and I thought, well, can't send them back. And so we started in. And I told her, you know, when I first started, it was like, ah, I'm dying here. I'm dying. But I said, I came to this conclusion. All I need to do is move one block at a time. I can carry a 60-pound block up four levels. Uh, I can hump that up by hand. And I'll just do as many as I can, but all I have to do is do one at a time. One at a time. And I remember when my wife and I were putting the last block in place and we stepped back and get, go, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you consistently do a little bit every day, every chance you get. It's amazing. It's amazing how much you can understand about the Bible if you decide, I'm just going to read a chapter a day and I'm going to do it every day for the rest of my life. It's amazing how suddenly your mind becomes to become theologically astute and you find yourself correctly dividing the word of truth. It's amazing when you pray every morning and every evening for this list of people who are part of your life and you're saying, God, when the end comes, don't let the circle be broken, but bring them to Jesus. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit begins to move and to change and to do things that you never thought were possible. Even when you said, I just feel like I'm just reciting names without any thought or passion, yet God in heaven is hearing all of this. It's amazing when you just do little by little, day after day. That, you know, I just, my wife and I sat back and reflected as we were over here Friday by ourselves doing some cleaning on the building and um, <laughs> we just sat there and said, remember when this was just a grocery store? And that was a, there was a clothing store over there and there was a drug store over there and some outbuildings, and there was no hallways. I mean, it was all... Remember when, you know, the, the Albertsons here was the largest 7-Eleven in the city? Because <laughs> nobody, nobody shopped here. That's why they, they sold it to us for a song and a prayer. And I said, now you look around today, and you have people who, they don't know that I was putting the grid up in the hallways. That's why some of it's so bad. You know, they, they don't know that I, I framed some of these walls, and that's why they're crooked. You know, they don't want to know who had their hand in the electrical work. <laughs> <laughs> and you step back and you say, it doesn't feel like this arduous thing. It just, we just saw God just doing this thing. But you know what it required? It required just showing up. It just required showing up, saying one day, you know what? Somebody's got to do it. And so let's just do it. We have to do it because he says that the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. 
miss literally imaginations and fantasies of their own mind. No longer troubled or burdened by truth or reality, they simply believe what they want to believe and call it truth and call it reality. But there's also that positive side, something Max Lucado called the applause of heaven. He says, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I love how the, the writer of Hebrews put it in chapter 12 when he opened that chapter by saying, uh, well, this is Peterson's rendering of it, which I think is more fits into what I want to say. But he said, we are surrounded by all these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on. All the angels in heaven were told rejoice when one sinner comes to Christ. And I began to sit there and ruminate on that the other day. I thought, you know, sometimes you feel like you're out there slogging out on your own. You feel like you're a failure. You feel like you don't measure up. You feel like you're wasting your time. You think, what difference is it going to make? And to, at that moment to begin to realize that there are the angels of heaven right now watching you. As my wife was dragging the vac around through the building, going into the corners and vacuuming up spider webs that just seemed to always get missed by the cleaning crew. And, you know, it just... And we're just thinking, you know, God, probably nobody will even notice that it was done. They just assume that the spiderweb fairy comes and cleans them out every week or something. They, they don't understand that the toil and sweat and tear goes into this kind of stuff. And you sit there and go, well, why are we working so hard? Why are we doing this? And then suddenly to realize, you know what? God and the angels are looking up down at us and they're cheering I felt like an Olympic athlete running into that arena for the last time and having the place packed to the rafters and people shouting and exclaiming, victory, 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 especially as the United States just toasted everybody else. <laughs> I'm not partisan. But God says that's who you are. You are more than a victor. You have conquered. Don't look at it and saying, well, what difference would it make? He says, it will make difference for all of eternity because I have purposed it and therefore have given you the grace to do it. And I will magnify myself until the very last day through your life. Fight to the end because you're not just swinging aimlessly at the air. You're making a difference. Father God, I pray that you'd stir our hearts in a way that would motivate us, Lord, to believe you as Paul believed you. It does overwhelm me every time I read this as this man is waiting to be executed and yet not an ounce of self-pity, not an ounce of introspection, but rather a heart full of praise and reflection and confidence and glory, Lord, that he was not just a courageous and brave man, he was a confident man because I know whom I have believed. And he realized as I'm standing there on one hand, pleading for my life, and on the other hand, saying, forget about that. I have an opportunity to preach Christ to these people. Even if it ends in my death, I will preach Christ. 
God, put that in us. Give us the courage that comes out of confidence in you. Not the faulty confidence that causes us to have courage because of ourselves. Lord, you have a purpose. You have given us grace. You've filled us with your Holy Spirit. Now magnify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue on for a few more minutes, a few choruses of worship, and as we do, we invite you to respond to God as is appropriate to whatever he has in your life. Is there an area where God has been challenging you to pull the trigger and you've just been balking? Have you disqualified yourself because you have a past (laughs) and because you're afraid of what the future will look like if you do? Are you disqualifying yourself because maybe at the present moment you can't figure out how that that would work or how it would make a difference? I'm just saying, just pull the trigger. Oh, people say, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. Is there anything that has been presented to you? Well, that's not in my area of giftedness. Really? If it involves people and things, that's your area of giftedness. No. It's hard to drive. We used to always say it's hard to steer a car that isn't moving. (laughs) It's hard to find God's direction for your life if you're in park. No, you have to actually launch out on the road. And then God can make a difference. I encourage you to respond to God. If you'd like prayer, I'll be up here with some other folks and be glad to pray with you. Just pull the trigger.